1 Corinthians chapter 1, going to be looking at verses uh, 10 through 18. You guys ready? If you're just joining us today, welcome. Um, also, you're, uh, you're in luck. You've only missed two messages in uh, 1 Corinthians, so uh, you haven't missed too much yet. Last Sunday, a week ago today, in verses 1 through 3, we saw uh, Corinth, a church infected. We saw how the church was supposed to be impacting what is a wicked city of Corinth. But in fact, Corinth was infecting the church. We saw that the church in Corinth was supposed to be called out. They were supposed to be different than the Corinth that was around them. But instead, they were taking their cues from the world. That's what we saw last Sunday. Last Thursday, we saw in verses 4 through 9, a church enriched. Huh. They, we see that they're infected, but God still blesses them. Uh, it, it says that God is faithful even when we are faithless. This was a church enriched. Uh, you'll see in verse 5 it says they were enriched in everything. Paul, in his opening remarks, reminds the Corinthian church of how much God has enriched them, how much he's given to this church. Corinth was, if nothing else, was a great example of God's grace. You guys remember what grace is, right? It's God's unmerited favor. It's God blessing you even though you're a dirtbag. I don't know if you'd find that in the scriptures, but you get the idea. Grace is when God blesses you even though he knows everything about you. Grace is undeserved favor. And if anyone wasn't a great example of God blessing people who didn't deserve it, it was the Corinthians. Though they were not faithful to God, he was faithful to them. They were blessed, we saw on Thursday, with great orators, people who could speak really well. They were blessed with people who had great intellectual ability. They were blessed with spiritual gifts. They were blessed even with enthusiasm toward Jesus' return. And they were even blessed with the assurance of their salvation. All because of, look at verse 9, because God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They were blessed and their future was secure, not because they were faithful, but because God is faithful. And I am so thankful that he is. So, We've seen Corinth, a church infected. We've seen Corinth, a church enriched, amazingly. Today we're going to see the church at Corinth was a church divided. From verse 10 on is pretty much where Paul gets down to business with these folks. This is where they start getting their spiritual spanking from Paul. Let's read verse 10 and following. It says, Now I plead with you, brethren. This is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. First, I want you to notice the gentleness and yet the urgency of Paul's plea. Notice he says, I plead with you, brethren. It wasn't, I command you, you plebes. I command you, underlings. No, it was, I plead with you, brethren. And yet, it's really urgent because he uses the word plead. He says, I'm pleading with you. And he invokes the name of Jesus. He says, by the name of Jesus, you get right off the bat, you get the idea that this is a big deal. 
Paul says, look guys, I am pleading with you about this issue. This is a, a big deal. In fact, this is, in this letter, this is the first issue that Paul deals with, is division in the church. If you were here last Sunday, you know some of the things they were dealing with. This church was dealing with sexual immorality, incest, drunkenness, drunkenness at communion, divorce, all sorts of issues. All these issues. And the first one that Paul addresses is what? Division in the church. You guys know that the Bible says that we as Christians are at war. Right? We are at war against, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We are at war against a very real enemy. And this enemy is skilled at the art of war. You guys know one of the most famous strategies, maxims of war, is to divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. It's one of the oldest and most effective military strategies that there is. 2,500 years ago, Sun Tzu wrote about this strategy in The Art of War. Then a thousand years later, Machiavelli writes, A captain ought, among all the other actions of his, endeavor with every art to divide the forces of the enemy, either by making him suspicious of his men whom he trusted, or by giving him cause that he has to separate his forces, and because of this, become weaker. Divide and conquer. It's a good strategy of war. Jesus put it this way. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You know, Abraham Lincoln stole that from Jesus. But that's a good person to steal from. (laughs) Corinth, this church at Corinth was a church ravaged by sin, infected by the world. But Paul, the very first thing he addresses is division in the church. You know why? Because what the enemy wants to do is to add to infection in fighting. He wants to take a church that's already infected and have them fighting against each other. Think about it. He wants it so that a person that comes in here today who's struggling with the sin, who doesn't like the life that he's living, but struggling, comes in and has no one to turn to because we're fighting each other. That's why Paul makes this his first priority. And that's why we need to make this unity, unity of this particular body, our first priority. Look at verse 10 again with me. It says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. You see the three sames there? He says, speak the same thing, be joined together in the same mind, and have the same judgment. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're all supposed to agree on everything? I'm not sure if that's doable. That would be great. I mean, if you guys would just see everything the way I see it, that would be awesome. But some of you are stubborn. (laughs) Praying for you. You're never going to see things exactly the way that I do. I mean, it's sad, but it's true. We cannot possibly agree on every single thing. The best way to to understand these verses is to dig into this word division. Let's look at this word. The word he says, let there be no divisions among you. The word is uh, schisma. It's the same word we get schism from. 
It's a division. It's a faction. It's a small group of people that say, okay, well, we don't need the rest of you guys. We're, we're doing our own thing here. It's a clique. But interesting, the word schisma, the best literal translation is to tear, to rip. Paul is not saying here that we're not allowed to have our own opinions. What Paul is saying, I believe, is stop ripping into each other. Start, stop tearing each other apart with your factions, with your cliques, with your backbiting, with unforgiveness. I mean, we do know it's okay to disagree agreeably, right? I was thinking, if you don't understand the concept of disagreeing agreeably, I'm going to promote the uh, Tuesday men's breakfast. That's pretty much what we do. <laughs> group of guys sitting around a table, and there'll be an issue, and we'll have different opinions. And we disagree agreeably. It seems every topic that comes up has people on both sides of an issue. The Bible calls it iron sharpening iron. And my experience has been, on every issue, we end up leaving more unified. Even though we have different opinions, we end up leaving more unified because there's a glue that's stronger than total agreement. It's respect. It's love. It's the recognition at the end of the day, the other guy who, you know, is clearly wrong, <laughs> is also a child of the same God that you are. The same God that adopted you adopted that one. Look at verse 10 again. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions, no tearing among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The word perfectly joined is ketartizo. This is cool. It means to mend. As opposed to tearing, it means to bring together, to repair, to Fix that which is broken. Barclay quotes it this way. His definition, his uh, description of this is, it's a medical word used of knitting together bones that have been fractured or joining together a joint that has been dislocated. See, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, and I believe to us, don't tear, but repair. Do you guys get that? Don't tear, but repair. Every church, every church, this church included, has hurting people in it. Every Sunday, I believe. Every Sunday, every church has people who are hurting, who are broken. People with broken marriages, with broken hearts, broken wills, broken plans. People like that come into churches like this. And they're looking for healing. And they're looking for probably praying, Lord, show me somebody I can trust. Show me someone that I can confide in. I want to have this broken bone set. And a lot of times those broken people are even willing. They know it's going to be painful. It's going to take some time. They're just looking for someone who will hold their hand through the process. But so often what people find when they come looking for healing is People more willing to tear than repair. How about you? You don't have to answer specifically. But are you one who tears or one who repairs? 
I thought of a good litmus test, a good way to find out if you're one who tears or repairs. Here's your first question to yourself, to myself. When was the last time you said, I'm sorry? When was the last time you said, I'm sorry? Sorry is a word that mends. It repairs. It will fix a tear in a relationship. And if you're like me, you know when a relationship is torn. You know when it's broken. If you haven't used the words, I'm sorry, in a while, chances are you're not really into repairing relationships. Well, here's another one. When was the last time you said, I forgive you? Period. (laughs) End of sentence. As opposed to, well, I'll forgive you, but... I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. The sentence, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget... That doesn't repair relationships. But this one does. I forgive you. End of sentence. That repairs a relationship. Some of you guys, probably all of us at one point or another, but some people right now are thinking of a torn relationship that's in your past or in your present. The question is, are we willing to mend the broken relationship? Now think about it. It's like a broken bone. It's a delicate surgery. It might even be painful, but it must be done. Now, think about how exactly do you mend a broken bone? Well, you carefully put the two pieces together at a place where they meet, and you set it there, and you stay there. Look at verse 10 again. It says, Paul says, we should be speaking the same thing. He says we should be joined together in the same mind. He says we should have the same judgment. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think it's a really practical piece of advice. How many people have ever had an argument? Oh, okay, so this might apply to some of you. Okay. If you're having a disagreement, how do you get out of it? Sometimes it's like, how in the world, why is this arguing continuing on so long? How do we get out of this argument? Here's what you do. You back up and you think, well, wait a second. What do we agree on? Surely there's some things we agree on. What do do we have the same judgment on? What are the things that we can both say amen to? There's plenty. I mean, if if you're two Christians, there should be plenty. God both loved both of us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Okay, we agree on that. Do we agree that the Bible is the word of God? Husbands, if you're having a disagreement with your wives, can you, dis- can you agree that you're both on the same team? That you actually both love your kids and want to raise them right? that you actually decided to marry so that you could be together and work together, those are good places to begin to mend in the time of an argument. See, I think this is really practical advice. What can we agree on? Now, the crazy thing is that if you're humble, I think this happens automatically. Let's, let's, let's go back to men's breakfast, which I won't be at on Tuesday. We're filled with differing opinions But we come back to, this happened just this last uh, Tuesday. I'm not giving away any secrets. 
But this happened just this last Tuesday. We, we had different opinions, but we came back to some overarching principles that we could all take away and learn from. See, Corinth was a church divided. It was a church torn. And Paul is just trying to set the bone. The very first thing is like, guys, you've got to get together. You're not going to be able to deal with any of these other issues unless you get together. Look at verse 11. Paul's starting to get more specific here. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And Chloe's thinking, thanks, Paul, for throwing me in at the bus there. (laughs) But listen, Chloe doesn't have anything to be ashamed of here. The word where it says declared, it's nothing close to the word gossip. It means a detailed, accurate report. You guys heard this definition? One definition of gossip is complaining to someone who can't do anything about it. Chloe was giving a detailed report to the person who founded the church. Paul could do something about it. Chloe was not gossiping. She was reporting a broken bone in the the body of Christ to one who could actually address it, Paul. And notice, Chloe's name is mentioned here. This wasn't an anonymous accusation. It wasn't like Chloe was like, okay, you haven't heard this from me, but... No, it was like Chloe was saying, look, this, is, this body's broken and we need your help. Yeah, use my name. It's okay. And that, that's a good guideline, by the way. If you're ever tempted to rat somebody out, right? If you're ever tempted to tell on someone or to gossip, one way to figure out, okay, are my motives good here is, number one, am I willing to be identified? Am I willing to say, yes, you can tell that person that I said this? Are you willing to go to that person directly with the person that you're telling? And here's another. Is my motivation, is my goal to restore the body, to let the body work together well, or is it to get that person in trouble? Okay? Verse 11. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. The word contentions there is strife, wrangling, bickering. And in verse 12... Paul gets to the bottom of it. Look at verse 12. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I am of Christ. See, they had divided into cliques. They had divided into small camps. And each one was contentious with the other. There was Paul's posse. Right? The guys that said, look, Paul started a church. I owe my spiritual life to Paul. If he hadn't come, I, still, I wouldn't be a Christian today. I'm sticking with Paul. Paul is my guy. I'm a Paulite. Then there was Apollos' attendants, those who are of the party of Apollos. These guys would say, Paul, you've got to be kidding. You're a Paulite? I mean, Paul's short. He's bald. He's ugly. He's got a funny voice. He, he doesn't speak well. Yeah, he writes great letters, but the dude can't speak. I don't know if they said dude. But these Apollos attendants would say, but now Apollos, not that guy. He is an orator. He, he grew up, went to school in Alexandria. This guy, what a great speaker. And he's an intellectual. And you know, the intellectuals have real currency here in Corinth. Me, you can be Apollite if you want, but... I'm an Apollonian. Then there was, number three, Peter's party. 
These guys would say, look, you guys are both crazy. Paul's not one of the twelve. And Apollos is even less. We follow Peter. Peter walked on water. Peter was with Jesus for three years. Top that. I mean, these were contentions. They were bickering. See, they all had their favorite teachers. And I think to a certain extent that's normal. It's okay to have people that you click with. Some preachers, some teachers you click with. You learn from maybe a little better. Others not so much. I believe that God provides many different kinds of styles of preaching and teaching because he knows that we have different learning styles. Most of you guys know Pastor Gib Allen down in Orlando. I know people who have jokingly referred to themselves as Gibites. Now they're just joking. The, I know what they mean. What they mean is that they really enjoy his teaching. Well, if that's the case, I'm a Gibite. It's okay to have favorites, to have people that you really learn from. I asked David Whitneybert, I guess he's serving. Oh, where? There he is. There you are. There he is. Um, I asked David if it was okay to share this story. He said it was. Um, you know, last week we announced that uh, he and Margaret are engaged, and we were talking afterwards. Um, I should back up and say that, you know, David uh, was blessed by Pastor Gibb. He was saved under Pastor Gibb's ministry. And, uh, we were talking afterwards, and he says, you know, we've really been praying, praying a lot, praying really hard about who should do the, the wedding ceremony and everything. And we prayed, and finally we've settled for you. I was like, thanks, Dave. <laughs> Look, it's, it's totally okay to have a favorite teacher. Just don't tell me about it. <laughs> really, there's, there's nothing wrong with having a favorite teacher. Here's where the danger comes in. The danger comes in when your teacher, you, you, you wear that teacher as, as a badge. As someone, as some way to separate yourself, to distinguish yourself from the rest of the body of Christ. Many of you are familiar with Pastor Bob Coy. Raise your hands. Okay. Some of you guys have gone to his church and amazingly you're still coming here. <laughs> but there are sometimes people that will show up and they'll essentially say, I'm of Bob Coy. None of you guys. Right? But... They'll say, they'll say it in just a little, kind of little, maybe a little pause, you know. It's like, yeah, I go to Bob Coy's church. <laughs> Almost like, you know, are you, you want to kiss my ring or something, right? Now, I know for a fact that Bob would tell you the exact same thing that I'm going to tell you now. The only person that gives you status is Jesus. The only person that gives you status at all is the fact that Jesus chose you. And here's the really weird part. He didn't choose you because you were worth anything. It wasn't because I was a great catch. That's what's amazing is that Jesus would choose me because he loved me. I'm faithless. He's faithful. See, Apollos, Paul, Peter. None of those guys were at fault for this division. Bob Coy's not at fault for divisions in the church. 
No, what it is is when the followers start to wear it as a badge and say, well, I'm a little bit better. I've, I've got more status. I'm distinguished. I'm different. See, some were saying, I'm of Paul. Some were saying, I'm of Apollos. Some were saying, I'm of Cephas. And others, the last category, I am of Christ. Now, here's the problem. We don't know how these words were spoken. My guess is, because they were included in this rebuke, that these words weren't spoken in a good way. See, depending on the attitude behind it, these could be holy words, or these could be words that are holier than thou. Right? Yeah, you're of Paul, you're of Apollo, you're of Cephas, but I am of Christ. Holier than thou. I'm better than you. I'm separate from you. I don't need you. I don't need the church. There are people that will say, I don't need the church. It's just me and Jesus. I don't need the church. Listen, if you're truly of Christ, if you've been born again, a very distinguishing mark is that you want to be with the the body of believers. If indeed the church was Corinth, the church of Corinth was being torn into factions, then the holy thing to proclaim would not be, I'm of Christ. No, it would be to plead. We are of Christ. We are of Christ. You get it? It's very possible that this fourth section was just as bad as the rest of them, depending on the way they said it. Verse 13, we're going to see a series of rhetorical questions. Verse 13 says, is Christ divided? Paul says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? First, first rhetorical question, is Christ divided? Now, this would be a damning question because the answer is supposed to be most definitely no. Christ is not divided. Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 4 reads this way. It says we are to be endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The church of Christ Christ is not divided. He's not to be divided. He's not supposed to be. But is he? See, that's a damning question. See, bring it home. If there's someone that you won't talk to, if there's someone that you won't forgive, if there's someone that you refuse to apologize to, then Christ is divided. And it ought not to be so. If you won't work it out in your own home with your own husband or your own wife, Christ is divided in your home. And it ought not be so. Second rhetorical question. Was Paul crucified for you? Okay, well that brings it into focus, doesn't it? Paul says, let me talk to those of you who are in Paul's party, who take such pride in in belonging to my party. He says, let me ask you, did I hang on a cross for you? Was it me that had you, you in my mind when they spit in my face? Was it Paul that endured the cross, the Bible says, despising the shame so that I could secure your eternal salvation? No. It's a rhetorical question. The answer to that is, of course not. It was Jesus who died to secure their very salvation. 
See, you guys get the point, right? Jesus alone is worthy of our allegiance. Third rhetorical question. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Was it like, I baptize you in the name of the Father and me? No. Paul says, these are rhetorical questions. They have obvious answers. I didn't baptize you in my own name. Verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. See, apparently this was another badge the Corinthians were seeking. Right? He was like, hey, I was baptized by Apollos. He's a good orator. Oh, yeah? I was baptized by the Apostle Paul. Oh, yeah? I was baptized by Peter. And that wasn't easy because he had to bend way down because he walks on the water. <laughs> they, were, they were wanting to wear this as a badge. So you guys, you guys get it, right? It doesn't matter who dunks you. It's, it's almost funny to me, there's a side note here, that, that Paul is like almost absent-minded about who he baptized, right? He's almost dismissive. He's like, yeah, there was Crispus and Gaius. And oh yeah, Stephanus. And he says, and if there's anybody else, I couldn't tell you who they were. Wouldn't you love it if there's somebody in the church who was claiming to be baptized by him and they don't make the list? It's like, yeah, there might have been some other folks, but I sure can't remember. Verse 17, Paul tells us why he's so forgetful about baptism. He says, for Christ did not send me to Baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul basically says, look, my specific orders, he's an apostle, he is sent out with orders. He says, my specific orders was not primarily to baptize. He did, he baptized some people, that, but that wasn't what he, that wasn't his main goal, it was to get the word out. My specific orders was not primarily to baptize, but to preach the gospel. See, Paul was a guy who stayed on task. He preached the gospel, the good news. It says, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of no effect. We're going to dig in more into these verses on Thursday, but Paul's basically uh, addressing some of these folks that in the church who were like, Paul's not impressive. He doesn't use the, the words that we Corinthians are worthy of. He says, I didn't come with wisdom of words. The word wisdom there is the word Sophia. It's the same place we get the word sophisticated from, skilled. Again, Corinth was known for their skilled orators, their philosophers. This was only 40 miles from, from Athens. The Bible says that in Athens at that time, people just did nothing basically but sit around and, and think up new stuff. Go, hey, I wonder if, you know, and continually talk in circular arguments just to entertain themselves. So Paul's like, when I came, I didn't come with wisdom of words, sophisticated words, many, you know, a five-point message that was really impressive. No, he said, I came just preaching the cross. He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Let me read to you what's in uh, the Blue Letter Bible under the word cross. A well-known instrument of cruel and ignominious punishment, borrowed by the Greeks and Romans from the Phoenicians, to it were affixed among the Romans, down to the time of Constantine the Great, the guiltiest criminals. 
particularly the basest slaves, robbers, the authors and abettors of insurrections, and occasionally in the provinces at the arbitrary pleasure of the governors, upright and peaceable men also, and even Roman citizens themselves. Now, very rarely was a Roman citizen crucified, where they sub subjected to this ugly death. Paul says, I, I didn't come with sophisticated words. He says, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. How many, how many folks, you don't, don't have to raise your hand. Sometimes you're just nervous about sharing the gospel because you're afraid that you're not eloquent enough. You're not smart enough. You're not versed enough. Whatever it is, Paul here says, look, you can be too skilled. You can be too sophisticated. Paul says, I came into Corinth specifically with this mission to preach the cross of Christ. What's really simple is to bring it back to the ugly death contraption called the cross and understand that it was meant for the very worst scum of the earth and that the king, God himself, subjected himself to this ugly death. But you know what's going to happen if you're willing to talk about the cross? No matter how sophisticated or unsophisticated you are, you know what's going to happen? Your audience will very quickly, like oil and water, divide amongst themselves. Look at verse 18. For the message of, cross, of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Paul's interesting that we end with the division. Paul says the church should not be divided. He says, but when you, when you preach the gospel, when you share this message about an ugly death and a resurrection... That's when you're going to see division. You're going to see some people who go, that's foolish. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. God becoming a man and then dying on a cross and then being resurrected. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to who? To those who are perishing. He says, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, Christians are not to be divided. But the cross itself divides all humanity. Right? We talked about it last week. Either you're a saint or you're an ain't. The cross itself is what divides humanity. How you hear the gospel, if you decide that it's foolishness, that says a lot more about you than it does about the gospel. If you hear the gospel and it's all a fairy tale to you, if it's foolishness, this verse says you are in the process of perishing. But it says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It very well could be that there are two groups of people in this room this morning. Some are hearing it and saying, foolishness. Verse 18 says you are in the process of perishing. You have to decide whether you believe verse 18. I do. But to those who us are, who, of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
It's the power of God to save a wretch like me. It's amazing that God could save somebody who's done all the stuff I've done and who hasn't done all the stuff I should have done. It's amazing. It is the power of God. It's the same power that's available to everyone in this room. But you're the one who decides what you'll do at the cross. The cross is a great divide. 